Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut, and I went keto in 2016 to reverse diabetes and lose weight. Now it's my mission to spread the science of keto and to show the world how cooking is really necessary for keto success. Oh yeah, and there is also this little matter of keto steamed mussels in white wine. Oh my goodness, that is exactly what I had for dinner last night. Well, it's a good thing you wrote that into the script. Steamed mussels in white <laughs> wine and boy howdy were they delicious. And I of bet. course, uber nutrient dense as we discovered that uh, most seafood is when we interviewed uh, Rafi the other week. So yeah, that's go right. seafood. Go seafood and don't forget to put some butter sauce on there. There was plenty of butter involved. Right. Anyway, I'm Carrie Brown and I also live in Connecticut, just down the road from Carl. I'm a trained pastry chef who went keto to control and eventually eliminate symptoms from bipolar 2 disorder and depression. I no longer have to take any medications and I no longer have any symptoms. It's my mission to show the world that keto food is entirely delicious and with a great recipe, it can be tastier and way healthier than any other kind of food. And this show documents our experiences thriving for years in nutritional ketosis. That's right. It's a document of our experiences reversing depression, diabetes, and bipolar 2 disorder, and how both of us feel better than we ever have before. And hopefully that might help a few of you who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Now, we are not doctors, so there will not be any medical advice given. Right. We just want to share our experiences and review the research that supports it. On this podcast, we share our recipes and any science we find in the show notes at twoketodudes.com. Sharing recipes that will help you on your keto journey is my favorite thing. So let's start podcast 189, Amy Berger on Alzheimer's and dementia. Wait, now we love Amy Berger. But before we get started, let's explain in plain English what a ketogenic diet is. Sure, that's any diet that puts you into a state of nutritional ketosis. That's where you're burning fat for energy rather than glucose. And the way we did it was to limit our carbs to 20 grams or less every day, have a moderate amount of protein, 1 to 1.5 one grams for every kilogram of lean body mass, and all our energy comes from fat. Fat? You mean that stuff the expert told us for years would make our bodies fat if we ate it? Yes, and they were wrong. Fat, fat, fat. If you're just starting, listen to our Starting Keto show at start.2keto.com or just start listening from episode one. So, Carrie, how was your week? What's new with you? Well, it was a very busy week. It was a very fun week and there was some good food. And I have news. What's that? I have big news. Really? I have Shocking news. Uh-oh. What is it? I have a chaffalion. I'm sorry, what's that? One of those mini dash things. You <laughs> know, a chaffalion. I don't know what a chaffalion is. I know. Banging I, on to me about I know what a chaffalion is, but I chaffalion. have no idea what a chaffalion is. Is that something you put on a horseshoe? And you know what's even more extraordinary about my chaffalion that I now have? And it was a gift, so... It was an enforced jumping on the bandwagon. Wait a minute. Do you know what else is extraordinary about it? Was that from Jackie Pick? No, it was from one of my patrons. Wow. Linda Peterson. Oh, great. She is here. She, she won a weekend, if you can call it winning, to, to come and stay with me in my home in my forest in You get to come cook for Carrie. And um, not only did she cook, but um, she also bought gifts. And one wow. of the gifts she bought me was a red mini dash chaffle iron. Okay. And if you know anything about me at all, you'll know that my my home is grayscale. And now I have mm. this red chaffle iron, which um, so it's just kind of funny on a lot of levels. So right. there we Your go. Your home looks have- like you're watching a 50s sitcom. I am now able to join the chaffle movement, even though I haven't yet. I'm still kind of looking warily at the mini dash, but I now have one. So there's hope. So there was that. So that was like the big thing for the week. But also, as I mentioned, I have um, a couple of my patrons here. My kitchen rock stars, Linda and Sherry, are here. Yesterday, we went up to Massachusetts to hang out with uh, the lovely Joan Walker at the farm and to meet the cows and see the baby cows. And um, that was a great day. How's Joanie? 
Joni is awesome. She is great, isn't she? She is absolutely awesome. So she she took us on a tour and that was super fun. The weather was fabulous. Um, of course, we're going off to meet the magnificent Matthew de Trumbull at some point this weekend to get some amazing 100% handmade artisan chocolate and some coffee. And uh, last night we had the most nutrient-dense meal probably that you could make. We Was had it steamed, steamed mussels? We had steamed <laughs> mussels. We had two different kinds of organ meat pâtés. One was uh. duck liver mousse, and I don't remember what the other one was, but it was all organy and it was delicious. And then we had some lobster, and then we had beef, almost like beef cheeks, mm. and that had been slow braised in red wine. And so there was nutrients. We were just bursting with nutrients our meal last night. And the lovely Linda Peterson cooked all of that for us in my kitchen. And so that was fantastic. That's awesome. And and, and the other thing, of course, is the holiday masterclass. I'm getting super excited because we're doing our first Q&A next Tuesday the 8th. So if you haven't joined yet, come and join us. Everyone's getting very excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. Very so cool. So that's been my week. What's been going on with you, Cousin Carl? Well, Cousin Carrie, I, you remember last week when we had Robert Ramsay on and yes. he gave us his secret for making brisket? Yes. Yeah, it works. I, I did it and it was so, so good. I did and it, you invited it, me and once again, I couldn't get there. Yeah, I, I essentially did exactly what he said. I salt and peppered and I actually put a little allulose in there because uh, just, you know, break up the salt a little bit. And also helps with the browning. It does, yeah. So I smoked it at about 200 degrees for four hours. And then rather than wrapping it in parchment, I put it in a uh, oven bag and put it in the oven 250 for another four hours. And it just came out so tender, juicy, delicious. I made a smoked brisket sandwich on chaffles for my one of my daughters. And uh, she loved a biscuit chaffle sandwich. Yeah, brisket chaffle chaffle sandwich, chaffle chaffle. That sounds awesome. There's a reason we love Robert, and his his brisket is one of them. Yeah, and you know what's cool about it too is that I just took the leftovers and used the Archimedes method to get all the air out of a bag and put it in the fridge after it had cooled down. And then when I want to heat it up, I just throw it in a sous vide pot for, you know, like 130, 132. So it doesn't continue cooking, but it warms it up nicely. And it's so good. I never thought I could make a brisket because uh, every time I had tried before, it just came out too tough. So I'm thankful. So it's been a brisket filled week at the Franklin House. What else has been going on? Anything of note? Just work, software, um, holding an online workshop to do some new technology that just came out from Microsoft and build an app with people, and that is filling up. And music was great. I played with a band last uh, Saturday, and that was amazing, and uh, played a, a duo act with Amy Coffey on Thursday, and that was fun. Also played with the State Street Saints, as I was telling you, on Sunday. This is just a, a sort of an unplugged group. So it's been a music-filled, software, and brisket-filled week for me. That's just hitting all of my high notes. Well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. So I think it's time for us to give away Two Keto Dudes coffee mug to one lucky member of the Two Keto Dudes fan club, which you can join for free at fanclub.2keto.com. So who is this week's winner, Carl? This week's winner is Erica Amato. Yay, Erica. Yeah. Good job. And Erica wins a coffee mug just for being a member of the fan club. Congratulations. And if you don't want to wait to win a coffee mug, you can get one online at gear.2keto.com. Absolutely. And now it's time for us to read the post. Or is it mail? I've had more people requesting that I never join you 
in your um, screaming of male. But you so. did once. So. I am. Oh, but that was on stage and we only had a very, very special Keto Fest guests there. However, so. it was recorded. I have proof. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is from the Newbies Forum. And the title is, I'm new, the more I learn, the less I know. Uh-oh. This is how I feel every day. In fact, not just about keto, but everything that I do. If I'm not feeling completely stupid and in the weeds once a day, I'm not learning anything. So this person says, I thought I was adapting well to keto in the two weeks since I started, but I've probably missed some things. I'm 61 years old, female, and have found it hard to lose weight for about 10 years. That's when I quit smoking during menopause, and it was a disaster. I approached weight loss with calories in, calories out, you know, seco, by calorie counting, and it worked, until it didn't. I had never had to diet before. Anyway, so began the cycle. Restrict and lose, binge and gain. I'm a certified binge eater. I actually have a DSMV number to prove it. And I believe, I, I don't know what a DSMV number, but it's, it's an indicative of an eating disorder. Uh, it's a red flag when I begin to count calories or points because it can be so restrictive. I guess it is risky for me to count carbs, but I don't see that as deprivation. I also have anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and this factors into my eating disorder. I'm prone to snack and nibble, so I look for zero-carb foods for that. It isn't really addressing those issues, though, and I'll have to manage my mental health issues to get a handle on this. In the two weeks uh, that I've tried keto, I've felt better. My weight has bounced around a seven-pound range, and my pee sticks won't turn colors, and I haven't had keto flu. Otherwise, this is great. So we are not doctors, as I said, and neither are the people on the forum, but some people on the forum um, chimed in and asked some really good questions, like, Give us an idea of what you're eating and drinking and how frequently and maybe list what you had today to eat and, you know, have you been tracking your macros? And she says, I use a carb manager app that tracks macros. Of course, that is only as good as the information I provide. Calculates my daily goals as 22 grams net carbs, 135 grams of fat, and 109 grams of protein. Breakfast was two keto waffles, eggs, mozzarella, truvia, almond flour, and prosciutto. Lunch was a ground beef stuffed pepper topped with cheese. Dinner was grilled tuna, riced cauliflower with pico, and sliced cucumbers. I snacked, as usual, on gelatin cups and Havarti cheese. I spent 40 minutes at the gym between treadmill and stationary bike. I remain aware of calories only insofar as I make sure I get at least 1,200. I am satiated by day's end, but... Snacking is a daily thing, a function of anxiety rather than hunger. I eat breakfast, go to the gym, have lunch, and begin snacking mid-afternoon. So I won't go into all of the things that everybody said, but a lot of alert uh, people on the forum really came back with some good suggestions, one of which is that a goal of any calories is probably not a good idea, but, but certainly 1,200 isn't enough probably when you're starting out. And also, when you look at all of the stuff that she's eating, it, it doesn't seem that there's a whole lot of fat in there. It seems that there's a, the protein is a little bit high, the fat is a little bit low, and the overall intake is probably not enough to satisfy. So, uh, you know, our advice is very simple. Keep common keto on and try to eat uh, more fat in, a, in less of amount of time. You know, limiting your window of eating is a good thing. It helps with snacking. Uh, here's a story. One of my daughters just started intermittent fasting, and she doesn't even eat keto. And she's lost three pounds in a week. That's awesome. Good for her. Yeah, so if you, if you combine that eating window with, um, you know, with eating more fatty proteins and less of everything else, uh, you're probably going to have better success. And, you know, I can't tell you not to have Truvia, but all I know is that at, at Fung's clinic, IDM, no sweeteners. And same with Eric Westman, no sweeteners. So that might be causing some hunger. Um, otherwise, you know, keep calm and keto on. What do you think, Carrie? I, absolutely. And as we always say, you do need to figure out... Um, 
what works best for you because sure. we're all a little bit different and some people need a little bit more protein and some people need a little bit less. But the common denominator for everybody and the best place to start is reducing your carbs as low as possible. Yeah. And don't overthink things. Richard Morris came up with a great keto haiku. It says, when you're hungry, eat. Mostly fat with some protein. Stop when you're full. That's keto in a haiku. Yep. Keto in a haiku. You don't have to overthink it. And after a while, you'll just, uh, things will just start kicking in for you. Anyway, that's the mail. That was a very good mail. But I would be lying if I didn't say I'm very excited to talk to Amy. Yeah, me too. So uh, Amy Berger is standing by and she's ready to talk to us right now. Hi, Amy. Hey, Carl. How's it going? Uh, it's going pretty good. Welcome hey, back. Hey, Amy. Hey, Carrie. Yeah, good Good to be here. I think this is my second round here on your show. Yeah, the first one was a live keto fest, wasn't it? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, two two years ago, I think. Yeah. And speaking of keto fest, I really loved your talk. I think it was the runaway favorite. Oh, thank you. Wow, I really appreciate that because it was... Um, it's a it's a touchy subject, but I think it's one that we uh, we don't talk about enough. Well, for those who weren't at Keto Fest, why don't you tell everybody what it was? Sure. So I um I don't remember what the name of my talk was, but the gist of it was basically we all know what to do with keto, right? Like don't eat carbs, don't eat sugar and starch. Right. Why is it sometimes so hard to actually do it? Right. You know, and it has to do with just the way we self-sabotage or for whatever reason, some of us have, you know, food addiction or carbohydrate addiction, or we self-medicate with food. Mm. Um, and, you know, even after being keto for a while, sometimes it still happens. And I think it's okay to talk about it. And it's, it's more than okay to talk about it. It's, it's, we have to talk about it. Yeah, and we have to. Yeah. Like people, I think need to understand that whatever they see on social media from their favorite I hate the word guru, but their favorite keto low carb personality mm. is not necessarily what's going on in their real life when the cameras are off and the phones are away. You know, everybody struggles and, um, you know, maybe a couple of few blessed lucky people don't struggle, but if you do, that's okay. Guess what? You're human. And so am I. Right. It is after all, a, 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 an, a something you have to adhere to for it to work. Yeah. yeah. And and the thing is, if you don't adhere 100% of the time, that's okay. You know, some don't beat yourself up. Yeah. Some people can, if, if you do adhere 99% of the time and every now and then something goes screwy, you know, we still love you. <laughs> There's um, lots of instances where even if you're an expert in something, it doesn't make it easy for you to actually put it into practice in your own life sure like you know for example psychotherapists that do marriage counseling don't have a perfect marriage where they never like you know upset their spouse so there's no reason why anybody even uh, us air quotes keto experts we you know the we don't also have days where it's just it's hard and and maybe we go off the ranch for a bit and then get back on but mm -hmm. you know that's just all part of being human yeah and it absolutely was i went and combed all of the reviews after keto fest and yours was absolutely slam dunk the favorite talk of the mm -hmm. of the whole oh, keto fest wow, 2019 so, um, so it's clearly a really really important topic for right, it resonated with a lot of people yeah for people to talk about but for someone who is a keto expert to talk about out loud so thank you yeah, Amy, thanks for, for coming oh, and doing well that. thank you i i really appreciate that feedback and you know it's it's part part of why i really dislike the body shaming and the comments that are made for for anyone following any type of diet even talking about a vegan or somebody else but in the keto camp to criticize someone or say, well, keto must not work because so-and-so person is still heavy or so-and-so person is still obese or whatever, that doesn't mean that person doesn't know what to do. All that does is hammer home even more how difficult this sometimes is to do, even when you know what to do. Right. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't mean that that person doesn't understand the science or that keto doesn't work. It just, just shows everybody that it is 
it's not as easy as it sometimes looks. And it's, it's okay to, to talk about that publicly. And, and from my perspective as a, there's, there's been a few times, not recently, but there have been a few times in the past where, you know, I, someone's, um, heard me say that I ate, I don't know, um, an apricot and it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, Carrie's recipes aren't keto. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell did that doesn't correlate? <laughs> right. Because I ate an apricot doesn't mean that I suddenly lost all my knowledge about how to create keto recipes. So it's, it, you know, that kind of stuff is, is kind of crazy and it doesn't help anybody. So the fact that you kind of threw a light on this whole subject out loud was, was incredibly important for people to hear. Well, Carrie, you know, everybody owes that to you because you and I were at the Keto Salt Lake event and um, I mentioned to you that I was deciding between topics. I didn't know what I should talk about at Keto Fest and you voted for that topic and I said, okay, that's what I'll go with. So <laughs> that's thanks to you, I guess. I was reading Facebook today and somebody was talking about their mother who had dementia and Alzheimer's and this person was trying to you know, feed her properly for it, which is what we're going to talk about. And it said, you know, she ate half of her eggs and then said she wasn't full. And then five minutes later said, will you make me a pancake? Mm. You know, and dealing with yeah. uh, adults with dementia and Alzheimer's is difficult enough, but getting them to understand, you know, the difference between something that might feel good right now in your mouth or in your belly or whatever, and you know, your your brain feeling good down the road is a difficult thing to do. But that's just an opener for the topic. I'm just throwing you a meatball because this is your topic. Let's let's take it as uh, let's back it up as early as you as you want in this discussion. Oh, sure. So, um, you know, people people who know me probably know that I wrote a book called The Alzheimer's Antidote, which is about using a low-carb or ketogenic diet as a nutritional intervention for Alzheimer's disease or really any, any kind of cognitive decline or impairment. But the main reason you would even consider using a ketogenic diet for dementia or Alzheimer's is that they regularly call Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain. So that tells us right off the bat, there is something going on with glucose and or insulin in the brain. And, um, you know, to, to keep things simple, the main malfunction in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's disease is that the neurons in affected areas do not metabolize glucose effectively anymore. So these cells are basically starving. It's an energy crisis in the brain. And if anyone out there listening has a loved one affected by this, and you've read articles about it in the popular press or heard stories on the news, they're constantly talking about amyloid and they're talking about plaques and tangles. Almost never, almost never do you hear anyone mention the, the what they call reduced cerebral glucose metabolism like that. That is the actual problem. And unfortunately, so many of these mainstream articles and stories never even mention one word about it. So let's unwrap that a little bit. So you're saying that, you know, the brain does need glucose and gluconeogenesis for people in ketosis provides that. And what, how does the brain are you talking about Alzheimer's coming on because there is no gluconeogenesis and there is no way that glucose can get through or ketones? Is that, how does that happen? Oh, well, that's a good question. So um, we don't know why this is happening. That That is undisputably, uncontroversially the problem though. It's, it's on, you know, impaired brain glucose metabolism. And it's not because there's no glucose getting into the brain. Um, okay. And it's not because gluconeogenesis isn't happening. It's because for whatever reason, these neurons are not metabolizing it. They're not taking it up and they're not breaking it down into energy, into ATP. We don't know why it's happening, but that is what's happening. And it's happening to people younger and younger and younger. So this can't, it can't be genetic because just like things like type 2 diabetes and obesity and cardiovascular disease and PCOS, we see these things happening, you know, first of all, in numbers that it, they never used to happen in. And, and they're happening to people younger and younger and younger. And, you know, they used to call type 2 diabetes adult onset. Well, now little kids are getting it. Mm. So it's no longer adult onset. 
And same thing with Alzheimer's. You know, they used to actually joke and call it old timers disease. And it would be that people's grandparents got this, someone in their 80s and 90s. Oh, grandma's getting senile. Grandpa's losing his mind. And it's almost, you could almost accept that as normal. Like if somebody's in their 90s, you don't expect them to be as sharp as they were when they were 25. But now we're talking about people in their 50s and 60s getting this. And that's not old. The older I get, the younger that sounds, you know, (laughs) 50s and 60s, really not old. And so something else has to be going on, whether it's something in the environment, something in our diet. This is not, it's not a genetic problem. There, there is a genetic risk factor for it that we can get into maybe, but this is not, um, you cannot explain this solely by people being genetically programmed to get it. There's more going on here. We were just talking with Dr. Nadir Ali about autophagy. And one of the benefits of autophagy is, you know, the, the autophagy is essentially recycling junky proteins and the, the, the problems in the brain uh, as far as what he says, seem to be buildup of junky protein. Is that right? Um, well, that's part of it. I love me some Nadir Ali. So yeah. I don't want to contradict him too much, but in the research that I've seen, it's more like the buildup of these junky proteins, which are the amyloid, the beta amyloid proteins. It's actually the result not the cause. It's the effect, not the cause. Um, These proteins are secreted in response to neuronal injury, and they actually can help repair, help restore. We see a lot of amyloid also in traumatic brain injury for the same reason. So Mm. it's, it's not like, oh, these proteins are building up and they're they're secreted outside the cell. They build up. They actually do block the synapses. They get in the way physically of cellular communication. Like it makes sense to point the finger at these amyloid proteins. If these plaques are building up and, you know, for lack of a better word, like gunking up the works, they're getting in the way of these neurons communicating with each other. Then it seems like, oh, well, okay, we have to get rid of this amyloid. But every single drug that has been developed so far, and there's been at least three or four of them, Every drug that's been developed to reduce the formation of this stuff has been a total failure in terms of having any positive impact on the disease. So it so, seems to me there must be some reason why the body is doing this as a protective measure, kind of like how the body builds up calcium deposits around, uh, you know, on the inside of artery walls where exactly. there are to shore up exactly. uh, the arteries. It's, yeah, it's not there for no reason. And And the thing is, you know, even if... Even if it is helpful, though, even if this stuff is helpful, and it does seem to be, when it does build up and, and accumulate and it, it reaches a certain concentration, that's when this, this stuff solidifies into these infamous plaques. Mm. The question would be, okay, why is it building up? Sure. Why is this stuff not being cleared away? And the enzyme that is supposed to degrade this stuff is called insulin-degrading enzyme. Oh. And that's kind of, yeah, that's kind clue. of a shock. Yeah, like, hello. (laughs) Um, This stuff basically competes with insulin for the attention of this enzyme. And when when you have chronically high insulin, this insulin-degrading enzyme is too busy dealing with all the insulin, and it kind of ignores all the other stuff it typically works on, including this amyloid. And, And, you know, something I didn't say with this whole type 3 diabetes thing is that chronically high insulin is a major risk factor for Alzheimer's, regardless of whether you have a family history of it, regardless of any genotype issue. Like if you have chronically high insulin, you are at greater risk for Alzheimer's, period. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, Amy, why Alzheimer's, of all the things you could have, have really been passionate about and researched and why, what gripped you about Alzheimer's that made you want to write the book about it, to be the, the expert on it? Right. Well, um, I, you guys know Gary Taubes. I mean, everyone knows Gary. Sure. And his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, was the first place I ever heard about a, a possible connection between insulin and glucose and Alzheimer's. And I had already been eating a low-carb diet and learning about it myself for years before I read this book. So when I read that, I was like, what? Like, how is this the first I'm ever hearing of this? Like, how fascinating. But I don't have any family history of Alzheimer's. So it wasn't that immediate for me, but I sort of filed it away in the back of my mind as something that I might want to look at 
in the future. And a couple of years later, I had gone back to school to get a degree in nutrition. I was a career changer. And when I had to pick a thesis topic, I said, you know, what is something that is, isn't, hasn't already been written about a million times and is something that I could learn and something that I would actually enjoy learning about. And I said, let me go back and look at that Alzheimer's stuff. Let me see if there's even enough published research on it that I could write a thesis on it. And I basically went to PubMed, went to some of the medical literature to even just do an initial search to see if anyone had looked into this. And lo and behold, it was everywhere. It's like hiding in plain sight, as they say. It was everywhere. And and all I could think was, I'm genuinely interested in low-carb and ketogenic diets. I find it fascinating. If I've never heard of this before, except for, you know, Gary's book, how then then what hope does the average patient have or the or the caregivers and loved ones of these people who who've never even been exposed to like basic information about a low-carb diet? So after I graduated and I, I wrote my I wrote my thesis on this type three diabetes angle of Alzheimer's and, and the potential therapeutic use of a ketogenic diet, I could not imagine keeping it to myself. I genuinely thought it was potentially life-saving information. And I still do. And I said, I, I have to put this in a book. The world has to know about this. And now, you know, Dale Bredesen has a book out. Mary Newport has a couple of books out. But at the time that I started writing mine, there was nothing. And so it just, even now, even now, it's not really talked about outside the low-carb world at all. No, it certainly isn't. I have I remember playing a benefit for the Alzheimer's Association and trying to bring it up to some uh, people and they were just like, "Oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting." You know, it's like, "No, I we know people and it's anecdotal, I know that. But we know people who have come back from Alzheimer's dementia at least temporarily after just a few days of eating low carb and then they're back. You know, and then, you know, whatever happens, donuts happen or whatever, and they slip back into it. So, Amy, do you have any stats on Alzheimer's? How how big of a problem is this um, in the world? Do you know? Uh, I don't have the world statistics. If I remember right off the top of my head within the U.S., it's I think it's the sixth leading cause of death, and it's probably the fifth leading cause of death in people over age 65. And I think that they say one one in 10 people over age 65 have it or something like that. I mean, this is a huge, huge problem because the, the financial cost of this is unreal mm. because it's not just, you know, there, there's no medication. There, there are medications that are used for this condition, they're basically palliative. They do nothing. They have almost no beneficial effect whatsoever. It's kind of like to ameliorate the patient, oh, here, take this pill. And it doesn't do anything. And really the treatment for this is just long-term care in a facility or something. And, and you know, individual families go bankrupt. Somebody usually has to quit their job to assume a full-time caregiving role. And, and you know, like, like I said before, that this is not a genetic disease. I mean, something else is at work here because if, if Alzheimer's tends to strike people in older age, we would think that of course it's going to increase, you know, like my dad is in his seventies. We've got the baby boomer generation. We have an older population, but again, we're not talking about elderly people anymore. We're talking about people in midlife and we ignore, you know, those of us in the low carb world, I'm sure all the listeners out there, there's pretty much no organ or tissue or gland in the entire body that is not negatively affected by chronically high blood sugar or insulin. Whether we're talking mm. about the eyes, the kidneys, the nerves, you know, the feet, the skin, the heart, the, the blood vessels, the, did I say the pancreas, like everything, nothing is, is immune. Why do we think the brain is immune? Like, like the blood-brain barrier isn't actually a concrete wall that totally protects the brain from all the damage that's going on elsewhere. And um, mm -hmm. I just what what's the difference yeah. between dementia and Alzheimer's? Um, dementia is kind of the blanket cat term and and alzheimer's is one form of dementia you could also have a dementia that was in, induced by a stroke or induced like by a by a traumatic brain injury or something where there's reduced blood flow to the brain so dementia is kind of like 
the, the general term, the umbrella term that Alzheimer's falls under. And are there there are other kinds of dementia, as you just said? Are the, but uh, Alzheimer's is specifically defined as being caused by these amyloids, or as a result of them, or did the two go? Well, hand in hand? that's that's what the conventional camp would tell you. You mm-hmm. know, it's 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 because of the buildup of these plaques, and I say. No, the, the buildup of the plaques is a result of chronic hyperinsulinemia, which in my opinion, based on the research the I've cause. seen, is also the cause of it. You know, the brain, I, I kind of have a hypothesis that the brain may actually be protecting itself because of a lifetime of accumulated damage from what I would call glucotoxicity, like a just ceaseless, constant influx of glucose. Right. Maybe the brain is actually saying, you know what, I can't take it anymore. I'm not going to metabolize this stuff because it's not as if these people aren't eating glucose. There's more than enough glucose coming into the body. At some point, the brain takes up less of it. You know, at first, at first, the brain has normal glucose uptake, but the cells are not metabolizing it properly. After that goes on for a while, the brain actually stops taking it up as much. And they they can measure all of this via PET scan and all that stuff. But um, Hmm. I think, and again, that total speculation on my part, because we, we don't know why exactly this is happening, but I would hypothesize that it, it's actually a protective mechanism of the brain. And the thing is, if there was some alternative fuel source available, this might not be as big a problem. If, you, if, if your car is a hybrid car and you're running low on gas, well, guess what? Maybe you can run on electricity. If your brain is not quite able to metabolize glucose properly. If there was some alternative fuel, maybe we could think of something, then it might not be as big a problem. But because most people are eating a high carb diet, the vast, maybe I'm speculating here again, but many, many people are chronically hyperinsulinemic. They're never going to be producing this alternative fuel, which in case everybody hasn't figured it out, I'm talking about ketones. Yeah. And, Does the and, conventional treatment now recognize exogenous ketones as a therapy for Alzheimer's? Uh, no, sadly, not even close. Really? Not even close. No, they're not. I mean, when you go on the, the Alzheimer's Association's website, there is not one word about ketones, not one word about reduced brain glucose. It tells you, you know, keep your brain active, exercise, eat a healthy diet, which their healthy diet is lots of whole grains and, you know, fish and unsaturated fats. Um, There's some- I've heard this blindness before. Sorry, what? I've heard this intentional blindness before somewhere. Where have I? Oh, yes. (laughs) The American Diabetes Association. Yeah. I mean, every other mainstream medical organization too. Like there's just nothing on this. And it's it's unconscionable because I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not. But I absolutely refuse to believe that the PhDs and MDs who work for the Alzheimer's Association are not aware of this being the biochemical problem that defines this disease. I, I, I cannot for the life of me understand why when you get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, you are not immediately told, hey, the problem is that your brain is not properly being fueled by glucose and your cells are kind of starving. Maybe we could feed them some other food, some other nourishment. And it's just, it's yeah. heartbreaking. And I'm not saying that keto is a cure. It's not. But what, what ketones can do is make up at least partially for that gap in fuel. Now, for somebody who isn't going to, let's say, you know, we're dealing with the problem of your, your, your mom or your dad and they're in their 80s or 90s or whatever, and, you know, they they just want to eat their pancakes. Uh, is there a specific type of exogenous ketone that is safe for them to consume that might help them? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, the only two types of exogenous ketones I'm aware of are the salts and the ester. And, you know, other than somebody taking MCT oil or coconut oil, which can turn into ketones, but they are not actually exogenous ketones themselves. I think any which way you can get ketones into this person's bloodstream, into their brain is recommended. So I would, the ester I think is very expensive and it's not the greatest tasting thing. I tried a sample of it a while back, not the most palatable thing. If the main problem is that the brain is starving, the answer is to feed it, and we need mm. to feed it any way we can. Right. And, and we so, know the brain loves ketones. 
Yeah. And, and the thing is, the most encouraging, heartening thing about this disease, because there's almost nothing encouraging. This disease is a horrible, it's basically a death sentence. The only bright point of light in this is that they have shown over and over again, not just in rats, not just in mice, but in actual human beings with Alzheimer's disease, that even though the brain is not really taking up and using glucose properly, it does take up and use ketones. And the ketones will not compensate 100% for that fuel gap, but it'll compensate a little bit. And that is worth just about anything to improve that person's quality of life and their caregiver's quality of life. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the science that you did research on? That um, uh, was, was there any clinical data as well as hard science? So you, you mean clinical data like in humans? Yeah, or? sure, exactly. Were there, are there any known um, studies where Alzheimer's patients were either given ketones or put into ketosis and, and were able to improve? Yes, yes, both. So again, that's the most encouraging thing about this is that they've shown that this is beneficial. And again, it doesn't totally reverse the Alzheimer's. It is not a cure. What it does is provide some fuel for these otherwise struggling cells. And they've done it in people with um, mild cognitive impairment, which is the precursor to Alzheimer's, and then actual Alzheimer's, not in a very severe state, not in like end stage Alzheimer's, but in people with relatively mild to moderate Alzheimer's. Um, giving them most of the research has been with exogenous ketones or MCT oil, partly because it's really hard. Like you were saying, it's really hard to get somebody with dementia to adhere to a ketogenic diet, especially they if they're old and in there. Why they can do it? Hmm? Yeah, especially if they're old and set in their ways. Yeah, and they're belligerent. I mean, this this disease makes you belligerent. It makes you argumentative. It can make you violent sometimes. But um, you know, and, and like we were saying at the beginning here. Even for us, even for like relatively young, healthy people who love keto and want to do it, even for us, it can be hard sometimes, right. let alone somebody with cognitive impairment, you know? Yep. So, um, but, but there have been some limited studies with the diet. And in all cases, people tend to improve somewhat. There are some people who don't improve. And I've seen that more with the MCT oil and, and the exogenous ketones. And I think that might be because sometimes that's not enough. You know, if the actual problem is chronic hyperinsulinemia and reduced brain glucose metabolism, right, right. the exogenous ketones do not correct that. No. They do, it's like a band-aid. They provide the fuel, they 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 fix the symptom. They're not actually fixing the problem. And I wonder how much more of a benefit some of those subjects would have seen if they did a ketogenic or even low carb, low-ish carb diet plus the exogenous ketones or the MCT oil. Yeah. Like it, I, I've said in talks, it shouldn't surprise us that not everybody improves with a ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones. What should surprise us is that anyone ever does improve. Yeah, right. The fact that anyone ever improves at all is like a miracle. We should be looking at this like crazy. So Amy, when we're thinking about you know, keto and Alzheimer's. And I know, I know, for example, with, with keto and, and cancers, there's kind of a, a type of keto. You don't, you wouldn't eat the same food if you're trying to deal with a cancer as if you're just trying to lose weight. And I say just because, for the, you know, that's a big thing too. Is there a specific way that you need to eat keto on Alzheimer's? Is there some things that, that you can do differently to, to weight loss keto? Or tell us a little bit about if there are any specific foods you need to avoid and or include to get the best result when tackling Alzheimer's. Yeah, good question. So I think, you know, the, the, the research, clinical research in humans with the diet is limited. But my if, you know, if I had to guess and what I would tell people to do is, yeah, most, most of the metabolic syndrome type things like obesity, PCOS, you know, fat loss, even type two diabetes, your actual level of ketones doesn't matter that much. What matters more to get the effect you want is a very low carbohydrate intake with something like Alzheimer's, where we're specifically aiming to have ketones fuel the brain 
the level of ketones might matter more than in some of those other conditions. So it may be that people don't want to overdo the protein, but I don't, I would not want an elderly person, especially if they're frail, to restrict protein because some of these people are actually underweight and they, they, they need more protein. But I think the ratios there might have to be worked out a little bit better. And then um, I, would, I would put emphasis on things like coconut oil, MCT oil, and omega-3s. So if they want to, whether that's supplementing with fish oil or if they can increase their intake of fatty fish. And um, I also think that some of these people really should be evaluated for B12 deficiency and zinc deficiency because there are certain nutrients that totally independent of this glucose and insulin thing, like a B12 deficiency alone can cause cognitive impairment. And there are a lot of older people that if they're not outright deficient, they're what we would call subclinically deficient or maybe have an insufficiency where their level isn't quite where it needs to be for optimal cognitive function. Same thing with zinc. So, so you would definitely um, recommend that, that anyone looking to help themselves or to help others who are in coping with Alzheimer's, definitely work with a practitioner, you know, a, a functional medicine doctor, a doctor, a naturopath, someone who can help them evaluate what specifically they might eat that would, would help them the most. If there are any other deficiencies, like you mentioned B12, you wouldn't really recommend that people just try and, you know, eat keto on their own and hope for the best. Well, I don't think it's dangerous. I don't think any, you know, I don't think any harm would happen to anyone if they just sort of did like the Atkins diet, for example, like just do mm -hmm. a low carb diet. But in order to get the maximum benefit and the best result, it probably is worthwhile to work with somebody who can do some of that testing because, you know, a ketogenic diet by itself might not correct a severe deficiency if you're not eating a certain food that contains that item. So I do think it um, it's probably best to work with somebody who knows what they're doing and and to evaluate other things like even improperly treated hypothyroidism can contribute to this. So and and there might be somebody that's dealing with all of this stuff. Maybe they have hyperinsulinemia and hypothyroidism and low B12. So. Um, if you only correct some of those, you know, you're only going to go some of the way, but I, I don't think it's, like I said, I don't think it's dangerous for somebody to at least start the process on their own. Like, right. No, nobody's health ever got worse when they stopped eating sugar. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like as a first step, that's something everybody can do. Or things that turn into sugar once you get them in your mouth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm hoping that we can, uh, link some of this research and science in the show notes for people who want to listen. Where can they go on your side of the world for more information? Well, so there's my book, The Alzheimer's Antidote. They can find that wherever they like to buy books. And my website is tuitnutrition.com, T-U-I-T nutrition.com. And there's a tab on my website that says like Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's info. And I have links to some of these studies. I haven't updated in a while, but there's also links to some of the talks I've given, some of the videos I've done. Um, that's, that's where I would start with that. And I don't, for anyone listening, I'm not trying to overpromise. Like I absolutely am not saying that keto prevents Alzheimer's or keto is a cure. What keto is, is right now the single most promising, most scientifically sound approach to helping the brain under this circumstance, I think. That's great. Amy, thank you very much. And, uh, I hope if, uh, those out there with loved ones uh, who are suffering, you know, there there is hope. And do you share with us, Amy, if you can, uh, what are you working on now? Do you have an, another topic that you're working from? You're still just, you know, doing the talks on Alzheimer's and, and just trying to get to as many people as possible with that. What are you, what are you up to? Well, I'm giving a bunch of, I'm actually speaking at Low Carb Houston at the end of October. I'm not sure when this show will air, but the end of October, I'll be in Houston giving a talk, not just about Alzheimer's disease, but about what I found in other neurodegenerative disorders and the potential use of keto. So things like Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis and some other stuff. But my biggest thing is I'm working on an ebook about um, breaking fat loss stalls on keto. And I hope to have that out by the end of the month, but we may have to push it till November. But that's the number one 
reason people contact me is why am I not losing weight? And so I can just, instead of writing the same email reply a million times, I can just say, here, buy this book. Very cool. Well, I'm, I'm, I will also be speaking at Low Carb Houston, and I'm super excited that you're going to be there because I love when we get to hang out and catch up. So, but I'm also super excited to hear your presentation about all the things you're working on, and I think the the fat loss tool thing is fantastic. So you got to make sure that you give us all that information when it's available, so we can um, hook up all our lovely listeners to that. Will do for sure. And I wish I could join you in low carb Houston, but I'll be in Poland. Oh, well, that's nice. Huh? Do you have family over there? No, I'm speaking at a developer conference. Nice. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. I wish I could have made it work, but I can't. So anyway, uh, I will catch up to you some other time then, and we'll certainly see you online. All right. Well, take care, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Amy. That was great. It gives me a lot of hope to hear this and at the same time makes me sad because it's not being taken seriously by mainstream. Yeah, and there's so, so many people that are struggling with Alzheimer's and um, it, it, it's difficult for everybody, the, the, the people who are suffering and also their caretakers. So I'm just so thankful to Amy for like shining as bigger, brighter light on it as she does. Well, Carrie, I already told you about my brisket. How about you share a recipe? I do actually have a recipe. And it's it may seem like a bit of an odd recipe, but it's my way of transitioning from summer to fall. Okay. Because in the summer, people generally tend to eat more cold, maybe salady foods. So there might have been some cucumber in your summer. I love cucumber. My father used to grow them in a greenhouse prolifically. So I used to eat them like apples growing up because we had so many of them. Wow. And so this recipe is actually for creamy cucumber soup. Nice. And you might not think about eating cucumbers hot, but let me tell you, this soup is delicious hot. It's a hot soup. Hot soup, but it's also equally delicious cold. So if you can't wrap your mind around hot cucumber, just have it cold. It's brilliant either way. Sounds good. For your creamy cucumber soup, you're going to need two tablespoons of coconut oil or avocado oil, whichever is your favorite or whichever one you have on hand. You're going to need five ounces or 140 grams of onion, which you're going to chop. And as always, stick to the white or yellow onions, not the Vidalia or sweet or red onions because they have more carbs. You're going to need two and a half pounds or 1120 grams of English cucumbers. And I say English because English cucumbers are not bitter and you do not have to peel them first. So that takes away a whole job for you. So that's always You told us about that on an earlier show. Mm -hmm. So English cucumbers, and those are those really long, skinny ones that you can get. Trader Joe's have them. Costco normally have them really, really cheaply for a whole bunch. So get yourself some English cucumbers. That's what the bobbies carry to knock you on the head with when you won't get out of the way. There you go. (laughs) Um, When you get your English cucumbers, chop them up and it's going to be soup. So it doesn't really matter what they look like. So this is a brilliant recipe for anyone who has no knife skills or just doesn't care. (laughs) You're going to want one and a half cups or 12 fluid ounces of unsweetened thin coconut milk. And by thin coconut milk, I mean the stuff that comes in a carton that is thin like regular milk. You're going to need three teaspoons of your Redmond Real Sea Salt. You're going to need half a cup of chopped fresh chives. Uh, If you're anything like me, it may be October in Connecticut, but I still have bunches of chives growing merrily on the deck. So if you have some in your garden, that's fantastic. Otherwise, half a cup of chopped fresh chives. You're going to need two small avocados with the skin and pits removed. You're going to need two tablespoons of heavy cream, one tablespoon of white wine, and some chopped green onions, 
um, also known as scallions, mm -hmm. for garnish. So if you can't get those or don't want to get those, they the recipe will not be hugely impacted. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to get a large stock pot. You're going to saute the onions in the oil until they're transparent. You're going to add the chopped cucumbers, the coconut milk and the salt. And you're going to cover and cook for 10 minutes over medium heat until the cucumber is tender. And then you're going to carefully transfer the cucumber and milk to a blender and blend on high until very smooth. And you're probably going to have to do this in batches because yeah. that, that's quite a lot. So transfer the cucumber and milk to a blender, blend on high until it's very smooth. Would you recommend letting it cool down a little bit before you blend it? Because my experience with blending hot liquids is... It tends to create steam, and if you don't have your hand on the top, it'll explode you, in your you, face. You can, if you're, especially if you're newer to the kitchen or newer to blending, you'll probably, you might avoid some mess and, and, and a burn if you leave it to cool for a little bit. Some uh, blenders have a hole in the top that you can keep open, and that'll help right. let the steam go up. Right. So to the last batch in the blender, you're going to add the chives, the avocado flesh, the cream, and the white wine. Mm. You're going to blend that until completely incorporated and very smooth. Then you're going to pour all the batches of the soup back into the stock pot, and you're going to stir it well. And then you're just going to gently rewarm it if necessary. If you've let it cool before you blended it, you might want to reheat it, but it, you might not have to. And then you're going to serve it and garnish it with fresh chopped green onions and cream. Wow. So it's super simple. There's really not a lot of skills involved at all. And it's really, really, really delicious. I've had lots of great feedback on this recipe for, for people who were suspicious about cucumber soup, but no more. And I know there's not a lot of wine in there. There's only a tablespoon. But trust me when I tell you, you're going to want to put that in because it makes a huge difference to the finished soup. Sure. That little bit of acid, acid yeah. makes a huge difference. So don't leave that tablespoon of white wine out because it's a small amount and you think it won't make a difference. Great. It will. Sounds delicious. You're going to have to bring that over to my house when I feed you some brisket. <laughs> You're going to save time and tears by buying your onions pre-chopped. You can get most grocery stores now will have your onions ready done for you. So if you're in time crunch, that's one way. Um, again, with the English cucumbers, they're seedless. The skin's not bitter, so you don't have to peel them or remove the seeds. So less work. You can, if you can't get or don't like the thin coconut milk, you can use almond milk instead. And if you want dairy-free, just use thick coconut milk instead of the cream at the end. You can save dollars by using cooking wine or a cheap drinking wine. I wouldn't recommend using your best bottle from the cellar. Right. So um, that's it. That's your creamy cucumber soup. Have it hot, have it cold. It's delicious. And welcome to fall. Yeah. Well at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Right. Well, that sounds great, and that wraps up another awesome episode of Two Keto Dudes. If you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something that you don't agree with, or some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com. And come and follow us on Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Two Keto Dudes. Add the hashtag Two Keto Dudes to your posts and comments so we can find you. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forums, it's forum.2keto.com. And you can have a look around the forum without needing to create an account by starting with success.2keto.com. Come on over and check out our Facebook group, The Keto Kitchen, where it's all about the food and the recipes to get the science of keto onto your plate. If you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts we produce, please consider making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. Those pledging $20 or more per month have access to the exclusive Facebook group 2 Keto Dudes Gold. We also have a free Facebook fan page at fb.2keto.com, so go follow us there. And you can see all of our podcasts and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. Also, we have an Amazon affiliate store. 
You can buy your favorite keto ingredients and help us out at the same time. Go to Amazon.2Keto.com. We would love your help in building the most awesome keto community, and you can do that very easily by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how a lot of new people get to know about our keto community. Plus, you can help by planning on attending Keto Fest in the fall of 2020, because the community that is built there is absolutely incredible. Just head to ketofest.com to make sure you have all the latest information. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And now listen up. You got to keep calm and you got to keto on. Keep calm and keto on, Cousin Carl. All right, Cousin Carrie. And we'll see you next time on Two Two Keto Keto Dudes. Dudes.